0: One
1: Hundred and One? Welcome back to Pop Psych 101. I am licensed therapist Ryan Engelstad here as always with my co-host, executive producer, and Seth Rogen laugh impersonator, Mike Graham.
0: Okay, not bad, not bad. Uh, it's pretty a robust and guttural laugh. I've got it down. You didn't go deep enough. You were doing more like a almost like a Fozzy. Oh, I actually thought that as soon as I was doing it, I was like, "That's a Fozzy bear laugh." I I really did think that. it was like, "I'm laughing like Fozzy." Right. That's now. all right. We'll we'll, <laughs> we'll get it down. We'll practice. <laughs> okay. Hello, sir. How are you? Uh, doing pretty good. Uh, not much to complain about, I guess. Glad what's to hear. Going it. With, <laughs>
1: what's going on with you? I'm great. Excited to be here. And, you know, it's interesting, Mike, we talk about different things every time up top, and sometimes it's in the news, sometimes it's, you know, just what's going on in our personal lives. But I actually, I saw a video um, this week and I thought to myself, you know, I don't know how much this is something that people talk about, but it's something that's very interesting to me as a therapist, obviously. So I wanted to get your thoughts. And that video was, are you familiar with the Try Guys from BuzzFeed?
0: Uh, Actually, yeah, they did... uh... I was really into, they did a, like, a pregnancy thing. They strapped a, like, an electro thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, like, one of the funniest and greatest videos, and my wife was pregnant when it came out. Yep. So so I watched it, you know, three or four times. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, and they're actually really good about acknowledging, like, the need for mental health uh, self-care. And one of the things that they did recently was they, quote-unquote, took a mental health day or took a mental health break, actually. I think in the video they actually took... Like a two-week break without working, like to see what that was like for them.
0: Would wouldn't that be a vacation?
1: Well, technically, yeah. I mean, and did and they
0: take it unpaid. Um,
1: I don't remember. They didn't probably didn't acknowledge that. I'm assuming since they did it for a video that they're probably still getting paid. And what a what a life that must be. Yeah, um, that sounds like a vacation. Yeah, but um, <laughs> but the topic itself, you know, taking mental health breaks, taking mental health days, especially if you're working. Is something that as a therapist is very important to me. I obviously advocate to my patients all the time, please take a mental health break or a mental health day from work if you need one. So, I mean, what is this? Obviously, you've you've shared about our on our show before your own struggles. Do
0: you take mental health days yourself? Well, yes. Uh absolutely. I have to. I think it's something you sometimes you can't avoid. Mm-hmm. I think it's tough for a lot of people. There's definitely a stigma around especially with work. Yeah. with mental health days where if you're not throwing up or got a fever or have physical illness and you need a break from work, it's not accepted as something that you should be doing whereas I mean as humans you go through burnout and You know, I was actually a manager over quite a few people for a long time, and uh, every once in a while, you'd have an employee call, and you could tell over the phone that they weren't sick. They just needed a day off. I never had a problem with it, because sometimes people just need a break for themselves, and I mean, that's what I think a mental health day is, is sometimes you just need a break to take time for you. So yeah, no, I definitely do it. Or have, I say, I should say.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm I'm glad to hear that. And I think that's that's sort of good advice is that you do need to take it. But I think it, you you raised a good question, which is how people kind of acknowledge the fact that they need it. Because I mean, even myself in my own sort of work history, I've taken what were essentially mental health days. But when I called in, I, I was like, oh, I, I don't feel good. Or I sort of like feigned a cough or you know, had allergies or whatever, like, yeah, you hit it. Yeah. So there have certainly been times for me when I just probably could have said, like, I just need a day off. I need a mental health day. But even for me, a therapist, there's a certain stigma with calling it that like I can't come into work because I don't feel good. I don't feel up to it. I'm feeling low. I'm feeling anxious, whatever you want to call it and and the difficulty in owning that absolutely whatever whatever like the feeling is i can't
0: come in and do my do my job Right. Uh, that's going to do anybody any service today
1: exactly and i think that's that's a good way of putting it and i think any good manager or company is going to be able to accept that but we're we're sort of acknowledging that people have a hard time just sort of accepting their own inability to work
0: yeah and i think a lot of people don't understand what a mental health day means I think it would be important just to say like for me a mental health day would consist of just chilling out or you know just relaxing and maybe watching a movie it, you know it's a pretty like lazy day I might you know do some cleaning up and uh doing a good clean or something and kind of putting things I call it ground zero getting things back to ground zero like really puts me at ease so like that's a mental health break but anything that like makes you feel de-stressed is a mental health day.
1: Absolutely. But I think you used an important word that people struggle with, which is they feel lazy if they take a mental health day. Oh. I think we have to be really careful that even if you want to take a quote-unquote lazy day, that's okay. But that doesn't mean you are lazy. It doesn't mean you're being lazy. It means you're taking care of yourself.
0: <laughs> well, if you saw me.
1: <laughs> well, no, because not- even even when I if I saw you... I wouldn't say Mike is being lazy today. I would say Mike is taking care of his mental health. He's taking care of his uh, physical or mental needs. I don't care what you're doing.
0: Well, I only got like one sock on on those days. There's like one sock on. Still not want. lazy, Mike. I'm, I'm, <laughs> no, no shirt. We, we, can't, we can't call you or anybody else lazy because it's just a word
1: that's <laughs> imbued with judgment. And right. I, I, I don't want people to feel that way when they decide to take a mental health day.
0: Absolutely. If
1: you need that, please own it you know, look up your company's policy, talk to your HR, because for a lot of companies, it's like, what box do you have to check? Right. And being yeah. able to say, like, uh, this is a personal day versus this is a mer- mental health day versus this is a sick day. Know what you need before you
0: take it. Absolutely. And, and you know, today we're actually going to be talking about a movie and a character that uh, probably deserved a lot of mental health days. And even his boss told him, To take uh, the amount of time he needed to work on a project that he needed to. So uh, I think we should probably jump right into it. Let's do it. All right. Hi.
2: Patient has been complaining of back pain and night sweats. Blood tests and urine analysis are normal. MRI suggests a massive intradural malignant schwannoma neurofibrosarcoma extending into psoas muscle with nerve root compression syndrome and bone erosion. Growth extends from L2 to L5. We'll send patient for biopsy to confirm. Yes, question. Sorry, I just, I, I didn't follow that. Is there, is there something wrong with me? Yes, uh, well, if you look here on your MRI, you see this cephalopod-like object that's spreading down your spinal column. That is a massive schwannoma neurofibrosarcoma. Okay. Uh, so sorry, I, I just don't know. What it's it a is. malignant tumor. A tumor? Yes. And me? Yes. <laughs> that 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 doesn't make any sense, though. I mean, I I don't smoke, I don't drink, I you know, I recycle. Actually, your case is really quite fascinating because your cancer is the result of an incredibly rare gene mutation in chromosome seventeen, the p fifty three gene, causes the Nurse. I want a four-month uh, regimen of chemotherapy. I think that given the placement and size of your particular tumor, the wisest course of action is to see if we can possibly reduce this thing down to a more manageable size before we consider surgery. Now, chemotherapy can often result in fertility issues. But I'm going to be okay. If you
0: need someone to talk to, uh,
2: we have an excellent staff here at the
0: Hospital of Social Workers. Today, we are covering the 2011 film, 50-50, starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt as Adam, Seth Rogan as his best friend Kyle, Bryce Dallas Howard as Rachel, the estranged girlfriend, and Anna Kendrick as Katie, the therapist-in-training tasked with counseling Adam. Adam, a quiet, straight-laced public radio journalist, is a pretty content kind of guy. He loves his job. His best friend Kyle, though horribly obnoxious and inappropriate, is a good person and a genuine friend. His mom, as overbearing as she can be, loves him dearly. And he just gave his artist girlfriend Rachel her own drawer at his house. Things are looking good for Adam. That is, until he is diagnosed with cancer. Adam had been experiencing intermittent back pain for a while and received some abrupt news from his doctor that he has a pretty rare form of cancer in his spine and needs to begin treatment immediately. Adam seems almost lost as he learns that the survival rate for his type and stage of cancer is only 50-50. The response from friends and family of the news is a little overwhelming for Adam. Kyle has no filter and just blurts out all the wrong things. His mom annoys him with her constant worry, and his girlfriend suddenly moves in to take care of him, only to move out after she is caught cheating on him. Feeling like he needs another outlet to cope with the news of his sickness, Adam seeks counseling from a young therapist who is training at the hospital that is treating him. We watch as Adam goes through the pain and sickness caused by chemo. We see the color drain from his face as his cancer progresses. We see him being afraid and angry and heartbroken. Adam is saved when the cancer is surgically removed from his spine. When the credits roll, we are left wondering, how would I handle that? Well, thank you for that synopsis, Mike. And and this
1: is a this is an intense one, but it's it's funny because if you watch a trailer for 50-50, it's kind of billed as a comedy almost, like a dark comedy, but a comedy.
0: Oh yeah, sure. It definitely. I mean, I was definitely laughing at lots of moments throughout the like the whole thing, basically.
1: Yeah, and like the the big trailer moment is Adam is shaving his head in like preparation for chemo. Up, oh, he's doing it with Kyle's body shaving, uh, <laughs> you know, razor.
0: Yes, body shaving razor. Yeah, well, that's what you know. Uh, yeah,
1: so so it's it's this movie is built a comedy, and it's interesting because it it kind of. Uh, I think seems, or or I should say, it syncs really well with what we're doing here at Pop Psych, which is trying to address serious issues in at least somewhat lighthearted ways.
0: Right, yeah, trying to add a little bit of lightness uh, to some dark subjects, a little bit of much-needed comedy relief from time to time.
1: For sure. But that being said, there are a lot of serious issues that I had um, with this movie. Everything from... The dangers of doing WebMD research to family and friend support if you're going through depression or uh, medical illness to, you know, feelings denial and obviously the therapy that that Adam goes through. Oh, yeah, because spoiler alert, <laughs> Adam and his therapist sort of end up dating by the end of the movie. So I'm going to get into all that. I have a lot of feelings, as you might imagine.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. So let's just jump into it. Adam, like I said, he's he's this really like he is like a by the book kind of guy. I think there's actually a scene in the beginning of the movie where he is running and he stops at a street corner and there's like a stoplight for people walking and there's no cars passing and somebody else just walks right on through and he just stands there jogging and won't run through. So his life's like a pretty normal life. He's a straight-laced kind of guy until, yeah, he's diagnosed with cancer.
1: But yeah, but they do give him some, some I would say, some character. Uh, they flesh his character out. Even in those early scenes, we see from him, he bites his nails. So we have these sort of early warning signs that Adam is a guy that even though he's like straight-laced and by the books, he's also bubbling underneath the surface. For me, nail-biting is always like a symptom of anxiety or or yeah. something that happens. It's like a stress response.
0: Right, and he also has a relationship with Rachel, the girlfriend, and it's kind of clear that he likes her a lot more than she likes him, and he just kind of accepts it. He You can almost tell he even knows it, and he just is kind of okay with that.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, the first thing that he says to her after he tells her that he has cancer is, if you have to bail, you should. And it's like, that's really heartbreaking because... He has this sort of intense, obviously understandable, this intense reaction to finding out that he has cancer, a, a, a big specific type of cancer that we are not going to attempt to pronounce here, cancer of the, <laughs> of the spine, basically. <laughs> yeah. Back cancer. Yeah. And his immediate response is to let people leave him. And that was really heartbreaking for me, You know, knowing that for a guy like Adam, who we know is anxious he's probably already worried about the burden that he would put on his girlfriend just because he's going to be going through this medical process.
0: Yeah. Like you said, we have a a guy who, I guess, is showing some signs of anxiety, some stuff lying beneath the surface, and he's having these back pains, and his best friend Kyle even asks him about the back pains, and he says, yeah, I'm going to the doctor to get that checked out. And so he goes to the doctor, and we actually have a scene it's like the first thing that kind of upset me where the doctor just walks in and is like Oof. taking notes, just sitting in front of him.
1: Like one of the worst bedside manners you've ever seen.
0: Yeah. And it's just like, oh, you you have this real, real blunt about it, but also uses like all the medical jargon. Mm-hmm. And he's like, uh, is there something wrong with me? Yeah. He's
1: literally taking his notes into the medical recorder as he's talking to Adam.
0: Yeah. And then he he says, OK. Yes, you have cancer. And he starts explaining and showing him the MRI pictures. And then I think that's kind of where A- Adam, I mean, he basically instantly goes numb and you get like the sound goes out. And I think that's kind of where where we jump in.
1: Yeah. So he 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 blacks out. Right. And then he's he, you know, I'm going to be OK. Right. And he says to the doctor and, you know, the doctor immediately sort of deflects. He's like, you know, we actually also have counseling here at the hospital. So it's like, I'm not the guy that's going to talk to you about this emotional stuff. So it's, it's Adam starts off on this tough foot where certain people really want to talk to him about his emotional process as he's diagnosed with cancer, and certain people don't want to talk about it at all. So that just sets him up for this, how do I accept help from people that want to give it, or how do I ask from help from people that I don't know if they're going to be willing to help me or not?
0: Right, right. and And so... What I was wondering when I saw this was when you when you first see his reaction, like what was going through your head as he left the hospital and he's introducing it to his his family and friends and, yeah, beginning to avoid things. And even like the conversation with Kyle and how Kyle reacted.
1: Well, it's funny because one of the next scenes after he's diagnosed is he invites his. So obviously he tells his girlfriend, he tells Kyle, his best friend, and then he invites his parents over to tell them. And he tries to ease them into it and uh, unsuccessfully, you know, I guess the thing that jumped out to me are the types of things that people said to him when they found out and the sort of different extreme reactions. So one, so somebody said to him, and maybe it was Kyle, like, you have to look at the bright side. Yeah. And it's like, I, I have to, like, I can't just deal with the crazy reality of this. And then obviously his mom's reaction is, I'm moving in. Yeah. So it's like he he has these different extremes of people responding to him. And frankly, this is very common, whether you're dealing with uh, extreme medical diagnosis or just depression, anxiety, people don't know how to be helpful. So they kind of default to their own instincts. So Kyle's like the funny guy and he wants... He just wants Adam to be happy and wants him to laugh. So he tries to get him to look at the bright side he's making jokes about 50-50 and all these kinds of things. And his mom, who's obviously very overprotective, you know, wants to move in, wants to be his caretaker immediately, even though she's already taking care of Adam's dad, who, as we know, has Alzheimer's. Also very yeah. sad.
0: Yeah. And it's funny that you said, or it's funny that the episode that we're doing is is, you know, mainly about Adam and him coping with this illness that he's recently been diagnosed with but there is this element of friends and family also kind of having to cope with you know a loved one having an Ill- illness does that make sense
1: absolutely yeah it's part of it's part of the picture
0: and you don't know what to do or or how to react or what to say or what they need i guess you know you've dealt with patients i'm sure that have come in and they've told you stories about their friends and family and what they've said to them and what they really want them to say to them what has been your experience as far as yeah like what should friends and family really be doing what should they really be saying to actually be helpful
1: well yeah so first the the standard lines of like if you need anything let me know you know i've i've worked with the people who have been asked that question have been said that to them and I'll say most people, not all people. Most people will hear that, will feel great that you're you're willing to do anything if all they have to do is ask. They're not going to ask. Hmm. Because as we saw with Adam, he's already feeling like a burden to his girlfriend that he's willing to just let go. So the idea of his mom or Kyle being like, you know, if you need anything, just tell me, I'm only a phone call away. Adam's not going to ask them. He's not going to call them and and ask them to do things. I mean, you know, look at a later scene in the movie when Adam was offered uh, a ride by some of the guys that he was getting chemo from a ride home, but he just waited for his girlfriend, um, who was like several hours late, it seemed.
0: Right, which was just like infuriating. Yeah. To, so he. To so see. you're like, why is she? Why did she even stay?
1: Sure. So we could deal with her psychology for a whole nother <laughs> episode. Um. But, but yeah, so he's not a person that is a strong self advocate for his needs. And part of that is because he's sort of in denial and is not really doing well in acknowledging his own needs, whether those be physical or emotional.
0: Right. So before we tackle Adam and how he coped with everything specifically, what do you th- like? What do you think as a friend or a family, you said that. They're not really going to respond to you reaching out and saying, if you need anything, let me know what would be the actual thing you would recommend.
1: Yeah. Thank you for getting me back to that. Yeah. So a, a person who's going through this sort of situation, as you see Adam through the movie, like lying on the couch, just sort of a mess. And and obviously you want to communicate with them, you know, here's how I want to help you. Is this okay? So that might be like a, a, a framework through which to think about it. I want to bring you dinner tonight. Is that okay? I want to take you out to the bar tonight to watch the game. Is that okay? I'm going for a walk. I want you to come with me. So it's, right. it's it's this very sort of assertive version of help. And especially is good for people who have depression. Because if you just give them the option of calling for you, that depression has sapped their energy and their willpower and all these things. They're not going to reach out. They're unlikely to reach out on their own. But if you tell them to do something with you, they might be more likely of activating that energy to follow through on that opportunity.
0: And someone with an illness this extreme, like it, they portray his cancer as something that's very seriously life-threatening. All it has to do is metastasize, and then his chances of survival are going to drop to less than ten percent. I mean, how I don't know how to put this, but like, how often should we be calling and saying? I'm going to bring you dinner tonight. That's okay. Is that okay?
1: Well, so yeah, totally reasonable question. And, you know, the thing that we want Adam to be able to do is to advocate for himself. So looking at his mom, who says sort of what we're saying, like, I'm moving in. Now, she doesn't say, is that okay? But it's sort of Adam is a strong enough self-advocate to be able to say, no, I don't want you to do that. So he's able to point to things that he does not want. So by putting it in that person's court of like, I'm going to do something for you, or I want to do something for you, our hope is that they're a strong enough self-advocate that even if they can't ask you for help, they can tell you what things they don't want.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that that's got to be hard.
1: Yeah. Oh, it's absolutely hard. And it's a fine line to walk. But that's why this communication is is so important is whether you're you're on the extreme side of Adam's mom and like wanting to force help, but Adam's not accepting it. Or, you know, on the side of Kyle, who's just like, I don't know what to do for this guy. I'm just going to try to make him laugh and get him laid. And like, hopefully that'll make him happy. (laughs) You have these sort of extremes and it's like neither neither one of them is exactly what Adam is is asking for or obviously wanting as we go through the movie. So being able to communicate directly with Adam, like, hey, I want to help you and I want to know what the best way to do that is. Is it okay if I make specific offers? Is it okay if I just tell you I'm doing something? And if it's yeah. not, like, can I trust that
0: you'll tell me you're
1: not up for that?
0: So, I mean, Adam, he is not clear. He doesn't advocate for himself. I think throughout, like, the entire thing. So... Well, he does.
1: He does in certain regards. So, like, with the example with his mom, she says, I'm moving in. I mean, if he were if he were incapable of self-advocacy, he'd just be like, all right, mom, I guess if you really want to. But he says, no. He says, no, I don't want you to do that. And then he allows uh, his girlfriend to, at least in that moment, say, like, I'm helping him. I'm taking care of him. And he's sort of happy about that or at least accepting of it. So uh, there are moments of self-advocacy.
0: Okay. Uh, So I don't know. What I see from Adam after he's diagnosed and he, you know, he introduces this horrible thing to everyone in his life is this numbness and this just I mean, it's like everything that you saw at the beginning of the movie just like completely drains out of him in like an instant. And you had mentioned before when we were just talking about things that there was like kind of like a stages thing that he goes through.
1: Well, yeah. So in one of the trailers, actually, for 5050, they sort of break it down to these four stages that Adam goes through. So they say shock. And that's sort of when he just finds out that he's diagnosed. And dealing with that. Then there's denial, which we see of as you know Adam saying things like, "I'm fine, so and and I'll get back to that. There's resistance, which is people sort of trying to help him and him sort of fighting back up against that or or not knowing how to accept people's help. And then finally, there's acceptance. And for me, what that looks like is Adam sort of finally acknowledging the emotional truth of the situation. And being able to communicate that to people in more and more um, open and expressive ways. So he absolutely goes through stages and in some ways are similar to like the stages of grief that we've talked about before. But but I think this is a specific stage of of sort of going through the process of really acceptance of a of a medical diagnosis. Right. So, so yes, I wanted to talk about denial, because as as you mentioned, you and I were talking before and you felt like there were at least you couldn't really point to any interactions in the movie and say, like, oh, he's in denial.
0: Yeah, no, that. yeah, I could not, as far as denial is concerned, I could not see him denying. I I only saw him withdrawing and just, like, he was really quiet about it and just didn't say much. And so I didn't see a lot of what I thought were stages. Like, I'm taking extensive notes, and I had notes about Kyle, I had notes about... Rachel and the mom and Katie, but, like, the least notes I had were on Adam. Sure. So, yeah, I didn't see anything like that.
1: Yeah, so for me, the, the big giveaway that Adam's in denial is how often he says, I'm fine, whether that's to his therapist or his mom or Kyle or his girlfriend or friends or uh, his, his chemotherapy group. The whole time, he just he, he's not honest about how he's feeling and what he's going through. Now, I'm not saying that he has to be honest with those people, but that's a big giveaway for me of there are things happening beneath the surface that he doesn't want to acknowledge or think about or feel or communicate. So, and and I'm going to go a step further. I don't know if if you've heard this, Mike, or maybe I've said it before on another podcast, but we in the therapy world uh, believe FINE is an acronym. Huh, really? And that FINE actually stands for, instead of saying I'm fine, it's like I'm... Um, and, and caution for language, I guess I'm fucked up, insecure, neurotic, or emotional.
0: Really? Yeah. Because so every time I see my therapist, she goes, okay. (laughs) Cause I say that every time. Because fine. Like what even the hell does that mean? I don't know. I mean, I never mean I'm fine when I say I'm fine. I want her to ask more. <laughs> exactly. But that's the whole point, is that fine doesn't mean anything. It doesn't even mean what
1: it's trying to mean. So that's denial. You know, it's, it either means I want you to ask, or it means I don't know, or it means I don't want to think about it. So that all of those things are denial.
0: So, so best case scenario, I don't know how it would be possible to react in any other way if you were diagnosed with like this kind of illness or really just anything that's going to affect your life significantly. I mean, but, but in a, a perfect world, how should someone handle this? You know, if they were, they went to therapy and they were doing their best to like respond the best way possible.
1: So I think a more honest answer for Adam in these moments is I don't know how I feel or I'm feeling so much. I don't know where to start. I'm angry. I'm sad. I'm I'm freaked out. I am scared. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, all of those things. So those would be more honest answers. Now, if he's not comfortable communicating that to these various people, that's fine. But that's why, for me, especially when you're talking to friends and family, people who are trying to support you, if they're asking you these questions all the time, and and more than likely they are, how are you doing? How is everything going? You know, how's the treatment? It's like You don't have to open the door into everything you're experiencing, but you can acknowledge a little bit of the intensity like, well, honestly, I'm going through a lot right now and I'm not really in a place to talk about it. That's a way more honest answer than just trying to pretend everything's okay when it's really not.
0: Right. So Adam is is kind of. Yeah, I guess he's he's going through denial like that makes total sense. And he. After the doctor scene, the doctor obviously doesn't want to deal with his, like, emotions there. Because that's, like, the one time I did see him kind of show this, like, the shock was very clear. But the doctor's like, we have someone that you can go see. And I think that we, I think this is going to be something that we both really need to jump in on. And that was his uh, relationship with the therapist. Yeah. And so he goes to see a therapist, and and her name's Catherine or Katie, and she's kind of a young, she's pursuing her doctorate, and she's working at a training hospital. And she's young. She's a 24-year-old 24, 24 woman. I think, uh, Ryan, what would you think, Ryan? Well, so this is an interaction, at
1: least the initial part of it, that I'm very familiar with. Um, being a young mental health professional, uh, Adam is Catherine, Adam is Katie's third patient. Every therapist has their one through third patients. Like that's just a reality of, of training, reality of learning, reality of the job. And one of Adam's first things that he says to you, to Catherine is how old are you? Because he's trying to get like his bearings, like, you know, his expectation of a therapist is someone with an earth tone sweater.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And like 65 years old. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And look, that's, that's a question that I've been asked before as well. How old are you? I've even I've even made the Doogie Hauser joke.
0: Because, <laughs> she doesn't get
2: the joke.
1: No, which was sad to me, because at least own it, right? But I guess she doesn't supposedly doesn't know who Doogie Hauser is. Well, that's the joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so honestly, when I'm asked this question, I don't answer. I don't tell people how old I am because I want to cut to why that's important to them. And if my age or experience level or their perception of that is a barrier for them in treatment. And if that's the case, I'd rather talk to them about that than you know how specifically how old I am because the number is not going to be what makes the difference is whether or not they're comfortable talking to me about what's going on for them.
0: If if that happened to me if I came in and said, "Oh, well, how old are you, uh, Mr. Ingolstadt? Yep. and you said that to me and and I was concerned about how young you look cuz you do look young. I know. That's okay. Uh, I would as soon as you said it that way, I would go. Okay, yeah. Okay, yeah. You're gonna be fine. <laughs> keep, keep going. <laughs> well, right, and
1: that's and that's why I answer it that way because I wanna as quickly as I can put to rest that I, I it's okay that you're worried about this, and I wanna try to 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 build trust with you that my age is not gonna be a barrier.
0: I actually had a question, sure. that regarded this exact thing for you sure. in your personal, professional career was. What was your what was the beginning? What does your f- third patient look like? So I started my
1: career in an inpatient substance abuse facility where I was lucky enough, um, unlike Catherine, to have a lot of supervision. So and I I'm sure Katie in whatever fictional universe had supervision. She's required to, but you don't see her like talking to her bosses and figuring out this obviously emotional situation she's going through with her patient. So, and, and honestly, in, in a lot of my first individual sessions were literally supervised, monitored by more senior therapists who are also in the room. So what that does for you as a therapist is it, is it puts you a little bit at ease. Like if this goes off the rails, so-and-so who's sitting right next to me can, can jump in, can offer advice, can ask a question. So it's like training wheels. And and I personally think that's incredibly valuable. If you can have that experience, that's what I suggest to anybody who can sort of have that training opportunity, because it, you know, if you're just becoming a therapist, like all of this process is new. Obviously, you have your whole training experience, but nothing can really 100% prepare you for sitting in front of someone and them sharing their life story with you.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's tough. And
1: and that's I think one of the one of the hard things that I observed is like Katie jumps right in with Adam. Oh. Like no no eval, no background. She even tells him, like, I've got your file, so I know what's going on with you already.
0: Let me pull up my notes because I have yeah. I think a page on Katie. Yeah.
1: Okay. So yeah, so so I want to go through the first things that she did. She um she was very quick to explain and attempt to educate. Adam about what he was going through right. rather than ask for his emotional experience. So then for me, it's like, I'm not surprised that he's just saying he's fine and denying that he's angry because it's like, well, you're just going to tell me what I'm doing or what's happening. Why do I need to share my own emotional experience with you? So a lot of problems with that. Well, you know, she's the,
0: basically, uh, she's basically like reading him the textbook to him. Yeah. yeah. She's making yep. him uncomfortable.
1: Uh, For sure. I mean, you know, she does the very stereotypical thing of like, please lay down on my couch.
0: Oh my god. Oh my god.
1: (laughs) And she jumps into within like 10 minutes of meeting this guy, let's do a relaxation exercise. It's like so much, so much has gone wrong already in this first interaction that I was surprised that Adam wanted to keep seeing her, but obviously we had alternative motives for that.
0: Well, she, well, yeah, we get there, but at the same time, this is a guy that didn't have, well, you said there was maybe some stuff deep there, but he had never been to a therapist. And so maybe he just is like, I guess this is how it goes. I'm, You know, yes. you see on TV that you're supposed to lie on the couch. Yep. So I don't know.
1: Yeah. So, and then we have this whole back and forth thing where she is is offering and initiating uh, physical contact. She Ugh. touches him on on the shoulder or on the arm. Ugh. He's obviously uncomfortable with it, and she's just sort of like, "It's the worst." Insecure and in like whether or not she should be doing it, but it's it's cringy. It's very cringy.
0: <laughs> so, so she says at one point that it's uh it's something that the practitioners at her hospital teach. And I was instantly like, I have to ask Ryan if this is a practice thing, because that seems like if a therapist ever touched me, I would be like, absolutely not.
1: Right. So physical contact is something that's discussed in training to be a therapist. Is it appropriate? Is it not appropriate? Um, Sort of. And in a lot of ways, there are cultural differences. There are personal differences. Um, So some people are just going to be more inclined to offer that or to initiate that personally for me i i i'll, I'll accept or even sometimes offer like a handshake at the beginning or end of each session but i also like it's you very,
0: know it's very Ryan of you yeah
1: i'm sure it is i you know i don't <laughs> and then like beyond that like you know the only time i would initiate the type of physical contact that that catherine shows okay we are Closing out our relationship as therapist and patient. Congratulations, uh, whoever you did a great job. We might never see each other try again. I hope everything goes okay. And and if they ask for a hug or if they want a hug, I'll totally come in for a hug. But that's basically it. I'm coming in. So so for me, I don't do the hand on the shoulder. I don't do the hand on the on the arm because just to your point, like no, unless the person is looking for that or has specific. Um, sort of signs that like a physical uh comfort thing is something that's important to them. I'm not I'm not taking that step without their expressed acknowledgement or interest.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Uh so it, it keeps going with her. Yeah. Okay. So one of the things that really got me about Katie, and I know we can't talk about her all day, but she took personal offense to his reactions to her. Yes, she said, I don't need you to take care of me. I'm trying to take care of you. He's not talking about you. Nope. His reactions are about his feelings and his, like, the numbness and the shock and, and, you know, his denial and everything you were talking about. That's what he's talking about. And I was just like, why is this person, like, pursuing therapy? (laughs) Yeah, and and obviously and we
1: we give a lot we get a lot of hints of Katie's insecurity both from those reactions and from sort of things that she starts to overshare with Adam about her own personality or her own personal experiences with she talks about her own dating life. Yep. Um so she she crosses the line in a lot of ways. And that sort of is why they lead to this sort of more and more intimate connection, intimate relationship
0: because she yeah she like crosses all the therapist' boundaries
1: yes she she offers him a ride in her car, another big therapy, no, no
0: and they yeah. end up in a relationship, like you gave the spoil alert, so i did i did uh, what did you think well, I mean,
1: so let me say this, I know that this happens in the real world because if it didn't, there wouldn't be like explicit rules against it. <laughs> And there are, there are explicit rules against dating, obviously your active patients, but even your former patients, you'll see sort of different rules and regulations, but in general, it's basically like never date your former patients, even if it's been three or five or 10 years, it's just never a good idea. Really? Yeah. I mean, you'll, you'll see some people who uh, may abide by like a five year rule. Like if, if we haven't met as patient and therapist in five years, uh, then it's sort of technically or ethically. Okay. But for me, it's basically never. Okay. Well, you're married. Well, yeah, I'm just, but even, <laughs> even, yeah, obviously for me, I would never do this, but, um, but even just in general, like if you're a, a therapist in training, it's just, it's just easier for you to tell yourself, this should never be an option. this should never be something I think about because it opens the door to, Oh, this 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 therapeutic relationship, we have a really good connection. I wonder what things would be like. And and as soon as you're on that road, it's not, you know, um, it's not about the therapy anymore. It's about the connection. And in in therapy, we call that transference or counter-transference.
0: All right, right. Okay. So last thing last thing about Katie uh, yes. or in this, what we're saying is, and this is just hypothetical, and this is not in defense of Katie at all, because to me. She was the worst therapist I've ever seen so far portrayed, like even worse than silver linings therapist from my point of view. I I would rather have that therapist than her. But just hypothetically, what about love at first sight? Like they're just really in love. Like what if two people were just really in love?
1: So if that's the case, as soon as you can recognize that you feel that way, you have to end the therapeutic relationship. And if it's love at first sight, like you in the in an evaluation, like, oh my God, I'm so attracted to this person. Or I love everything about this person. Do not accept them as your patient because, mm. you know, and I guess these are gray areas, but, uh, if you evaluate someone, technically you're not treating them yet. So God, it would be still so messed up, but If you're not, if you're not officially treating someone, you know, and, and you want to date them, I guess, uh, no, it feels even real weird. Don't, don't ever do it. Just don't do it. You're
0: so ethical. (laughs) Well, I hope so. I mean. Well, here's the, here's the deal. And because, and this is why you're so ethical because I've, I've said it already on the show. You're the greatest therapist on the planet, but also because as we see in 50, 50, He's going to a therapist and he gets nothing out of it. From my perspective,
1: yeah, no, I would have to agree with that.
0: So, uh, going forward, and unless in, you
1: count, unless you count getting a girlfriend out of it,
0: well, well, <laughs> but yeah, as far as Adam's concerned, like he didn't seem to, he didn't get much out of this. I don't know, did he get anything out of anybody? So, yeah, so as Adam sort of, and I'm,
1: I'm glad we're getting back to Adam, because he does eventually get to acceptance. You know, he goes through resistance where he's like, doesn't really want to deal with Kyle's wanting to get laid and and he doesn't want to deal with his girlfriend wanting to get back with him, like all these things where he's really pushing people away. But he does get to acceptance. And when we start to see the peoples around him, like the their emotional reality so, for example, we see Kyle has been reading a book, you know, How to Support Your Friend with Cancer. We find out that Adam's mom has been going to a, a family member cancer support group. So yeah. when, when Adam starts to see these things, he starts to accept not just the fact that he has cancer, but that there, there really are people with him that want to help him through this. And then he, you see him start to break down. You see him start to be a little bit more emotionally honest, you see him be scared in the operating room before he goes to get surgery. Yeah.
0: Like that's the big moment.
1: Yeah. Well, that and like the the sort of breakdown in Kyle's car were yeah. also signs to me that like, okay, finally we're through denial and we get to deal with how Adam actually feels about this diagnosis.
0: What would you, seeing that, I know that you've treated people that are going through illness... How do you walk somebody through this to help them like cope like in reality, I guess? Yeah, so absolutely. So it, the fact
1: that Adam says, I think it's to Catherine, he says in one of the therapy sessions, it makes it worse that no one will say it, meaning like the fact that he has cancer. So with my patients, I I, I try to not tippy toe or walk on eggshells like on what's ha- this is what's happening to you. We're dealing with the reality of the situation. And if that brings up an emotional response, let's deal with that. Let's talk about how it feels. Let's talk about the reality. Because I think when you dance around it, when you try to make things light, when you make jokes, when you push people away, that means that you're not saying it either. Yeah. So... So that's what I try to do with my patients. is like, okay, whatever they're, and I I have worked with people who have, you know, serious medical conditions, and it's like, okay, um, you're going into surgery for this problem. How are you feeling now? Like, what are you? What what are the fears? What are the worries about? So a lot of times I'll ref, I'll reflect back feelings to them, even if they're not saying it, in an attempt to engage with the the let's say the likely emotional range of things that come up for people in these situations.
0: So if you've got a a patient and you've been walking them through and let's say they've responded very well in, in learning how to cope and you've got them to accept that they have an illness and they're working with their friends and family and advocating for themselves and accepting help and, and all the things that, that help them stay positive, I guess through these situations, what happens when the, okay, so he gets Towards the end of the movie, they go and do surgery because the chemo stops working or doesn't work, and they're able to successfully remove the, ter- the tumor from his spine. But what happens in reality when you have a patient and that's not the case and it's the opposite? So in other words, what if the, su- the surgery was not successful for Adam? Right. And because they say that if this surgery isn't successful, then you're out of options. Mm-hmm. So I guess if someone's out of options like does this switch from the stages that you were talking about like through coping to like what we were talking about in the Spider-Man episode with grief. So yeah, absolutely a
1: little bit. Um so for example, if I was working with Adam and he went into the surgery with with some level of hope, right? That this is going to save him and then if it did not, um it absolutely is going to quickly transition to where we at emotionally now, like literally dealing with, okay, here's the prognosis. The doctor has told you, you have, you know, X months to live or, or, you know, this is, this is what your likelihood of success is. This is what you can do to take care of yourself still, you know, let's deal with that. So yeah, it really does go into a sort of emergency maintenance mode. And that can be hard because then we're not really talking about, um, you know, how to improve your life, how to be happy. That doesn't mean we can't, but it means most likely the intensity of the negative emotions you're experiencing are going to take precedence. So that it's a hard transition and it's, it's something that both as a patient and as a therapist, like you don't want to have to have those conversations, but it's really important for the patient, for someone like Adam to be able to say what's really happening. I'm dying. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's it's a hard it's a painful uh, conversation to have, yeah. but you'd you'd rather have it than pretend you um don't need
0: to have it. Yeah. What? Uh, so just to kind of end things off here, what what happens? What happens on the other foot? They go into surgery, and just in Adam's case, it is successful. Do they continue therapy? I mean. Well, I- I would certainly recommend it if
1: I was Adam's therapist, because now what you're going to see is, you know, even if we just get back to the baseline of Adam having anxiety and having things like this, you know, one of the things that's very common in cancer survivors is sort of like a new hypochondriasis. So every symptom, every cough, every fever is like, oh, no, is that the cancer coming back? Oh, wow. So. So I think it's actually very important for people to stay in therapy, even if they have a positive uh, medical progress. We still need to deal with emotionally what's happening for you, because you know this was a traumatic experience for Adam, and just because he comes out of the other side of it in a positive way doesn't mean that everything's going to be sunshine and rainbows. Now he can go back to work and act as if nothing happened.
0: Yeah. Uh, Ryan, do you have anything left to say about Adam?
1: so no i really love the portrayal by joseph gordon levitt and i think it's good for people to see that these stages are real and that you can come out the other side even if there's still issues as we saw with his therapist slash girlfriend
0: (laughs) all right all right and uh at that we are going to take a break and then we're going to be back with our ratings
1: you are listening to pop psych 101 a show discussing mental health and popular culture through two perspectives a patient, and a therapist. We explore the accuracies of how mental illness is portrayed in movies, books, and television, for better or worse.
0: All right, and we are back. Okay, if you have not listened to the show before, every week we do a rating. Ryan rates on a scale of one to five somethings on the scale of accuracy of the portrayal of whatever we're covering. And I do... A rating of one to five stars on the awesomeness of what we're covering, Ryan, what are we looking at today?
1: Okay, Mike. So I'm today I'm doing it out of out of five weed macaroons because I just love that. and and I, I wish we could have talked more about <laughs> the little um the group therapy yeah. sessions that Adam had with the chemotherapy group, the guys. yeah, yeah, I loved them. And I did think that that was like almost a little mini group therapy that Adam had. Yeah, um, and they
0: were they were like the only people that he seemed to be honest with. But
1: well, so yeah, and, and we could get into that. But but <laughs> out of out of five weed macaroons, I gave fifty fifty four weed macaroons, and my reasoning for that is actually as much as we disagree with the fact that uh, he ended up in a relationship with his therapist, like this happens in the real world. So the only real thing that I I didn't sort of like in terms of its realism is some of the interactions with Catherine. Like, if you have an interaction with a therapist and they don't start by giving you an evaluation, run. Run far away and fast away and don't come back. You need to have an evaluation with your therapist before they start telling you the relaxation exercises or before they start telling
0: you about emotional numbness. Just, like, stop there. Yeah. (laughs) So... And I think this is where I just want to acknowledge real quickly that this was loosely based on the screenwriter's real life experience. And from what I read and, you know, anyone send us a message and correct me if I'm wrong, but the therapy part, the therapist in this was one of the aspects that was added in. So that could be why.
1: Sure. And and, and that's fine. But even if they did that, they wrote the scenes as a therapist. That's just like, that's not how therapy works. So I want right, people right. to know that if you're going to go into therapy, it's it's highly unlikely that someone's just going to start talking to you the way that Katie talked to Adam.
0: All right. All right. OK, so uh, I'm doing one out of five stars on awesomeness scale. And uh, Ryan, I'm going with five. Nice. I'm going with five. I love this movie. This is, I've probably seen it. This is probably six or seven times. Uh, It's just like, as soon as it came out, I was like, I have to see that movie. Seth Rogen is hilarious in this. I don't know anyone who doesn't like Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Anna Kendrick is amazing. Uh, Yeah, it is a great movie. I loved it. So there's not a lot to say. Acting's great. I thought the portrayal was great. Uh, it's got a good story. It makes me tear up at the end. Uh, You don't do much better on the scale for me. So five.
1: Fantastic. I couldn't agree more. So a a good, lighthearted take on a very serious issue.
0: Absolutely. All right, everyone, that's it for us today. Uh, As usual, thank you so much to Kevin McLeod for all the music that we use on the show. If you're looking for royalty-free music to use in your productions, just go to incompetech.com and you can find Kevin McCloud's big array of music there. And, Brian, thank you so much for talking with me every week.
1: Thank you, sir. Fun as always. Okay, so just as we try to do here on Pop Psych 101, this was a lighthearted take on a serious issue. That being diagnosed with a severe medical issue like cancer and the emotional complications that can come up around it. First of all, if you're ever diagnosed with any medical issue, it's important to know that there is an emotional component to any illness, even something as minor as a headache. So it's important to acknowledge that emotional response sooner rather than later, because it will enable you to confront and cope with the reality of the medical issue in a healthier and more efficient way. As mentioned in the episode, in a lot of ways, Adam's interactions with friends, family, and even his therapist did not get Adam the help he needed. When suffering from depression or going through a physical illness, self-advocacy is so incredibly important to getting that help. The more you can tell people what your needs are and letting them support those needs, the easier things will be for you. Finally, if you are a loved one of someone going through a serious medical issue, know that the person going through this ordeal is going to have a hard time asking for help. But like Adam's mother and best friend, there are still important things for you to do for yourself. So whether you read a book or attend a support group, it's important not to lose sight of your own needs. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Thank you, as always, to my co-host and executive producer, Mike Graham. If you like the show, please check out our social media pages. We are on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, and YouTube at poppsych101. We are specifically on YouTube for our fans who may be hard of hearing. We also love hearing from our listeners, so if you want to give feedback or suggest something for us to cover, you can email us at poppsych101 at gmail.com or join our Facebook group. Pop Psych 101 is not only a podcast, but also a radio show. You can find us on the real-life radio station on Dash Radio. If Dash Radio is not installed on your vehicle, you can download their app on Android or iOS. For the podcast, we are on all major distribution channels, so please rate, review, and subscribe. We greatly appreciate it. For Mike Graham, I'm Ryan Engelstad. Thanks for listening to Pop Psych 101.